As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you, please, uh, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we come now to your word and it is life to us. You said that it, you say that it's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And we know that it is that very light in leading us by your word and spirit that brings us life. So we pray now for life. We pray that you would work in us um, that which is well-pleasing in your sight through this passage we read, which is God-breathed. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn to Titus and chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, please. I want to read this chapter. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves uh, to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation through all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority that no one disregards you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to take up, if God will help me, just this, well, this first sentence and then what it implies. This first sentence, it's Paul to Titus. Titus, pastor of this church in Crete, these churches really on this island, pulling them together, organizing them and all of that. And so here's the instruction that the apostle gives to this son in the faith, Titus. He says, but as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. So I want to ask the question. Why did Paul say that to him at this point in this letter? Um, We see the word but begins this sentence. And it, it means something else was going on with others. But this is what I want for you. So the question is, what's Paul up to? Why is he telling Titus this, and then to ask the question, then what accords with sound doctrine that Titus is supposed to teach? What accords with sound doctrine that title, Titus is supposed to, to teach? And then, so what? Why do we care that Titus is going to teach what accords with sound doctrine? The implication, of course, is that we are to do that as well. So what? Why do we need that? Why is that important to us? Now, next week, I'll take up the question, do we have any hope that that can actually be fulfilled? But that will be our Advent 
time. Next Sunday, I know the weather's starting to say Advent to us, but it's really coming. So next Sunday begins to be the first Sunday of Advent for us. So this question, why is it that Paul says to Timothy, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine? Well, because there were those who weren't teaching sound doctrine, nor what accords with sound doctrine, and, and it was shown in the amongst even the Christians on this island. Notice in verse 10 of chapter 1, Paul says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So there was a group there, no doubt um, somewhat affiliated with Judaism, circumcision party, uh, somewhat uh, affiliated there. uh, And we see from verse 14, they were involving themselves, devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. We don't know exactly what they were teaching, but whatever it was, it wasn't the gospel. And whatever it was, it wasn't leading people then to godliness. Because you see, that's the, the really the end result of knowing the truth. You remember in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul was introducing himself to Titus. And he introduced himself like this. He says, Paul, the servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of God's, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So Paul's saying, here's why I exist. This is why I'm serving God. This is why God has called me. This is why Jesus has sent me. So that those who are God's elect, those God has chosen, will come to faith through what I do. And, and so that's, that's, I'm after the sheep who hear his voice. And when they do, they, they come, they believe. And so, so they hear the voice of Jesus. So for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, this sound doctrine, their knowledge of the truth, which leads to or accords with or fits with godliness. The, t- the truth, Paul says, that I teach, this doctrine, this truth that I teach as a characteristic and it leads to the doctrine. If it doesn't, then either you're not hearing it and applying it or I'm wrong. One of the two, it has to. That's to where it's going. And so Paul says to Titus, these teachers were not teaching, first of all, what accords with sound doctrine. And secondly, they weren't teaching um, what accords with it. They weren't teaching the truth and they weren't teaching what, what, uh, what, what it leads to. Verse 11, they must be silenced, chapter 1, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, wrong motives, what they ought not to teach. And the end result in their, their lives and the lives of the people they're teaching, verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So he says, you, Titus, I want you to teach about Jesus this sound doctrine that will lead to godliness. So do that. They aren't. You must silence them. You must. Because if you don't, then we won't see the fruits of this gospel that you preach. We won't see what it's ultimately meant for. Verse 11, this will be our Advent verse, so I'm going to save it till next week, but just hang on to it. Verse 11 of chapter 2, for the reason, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, that is all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. He said, this is why the grace of God has come. The grace of God has come so that we can live godly lives. This is what accords to what you're teaching. This goes with it. So it really must. And so you do this. You see, one of the great dangers in the church is false doctrine, false teaching. Teaching that which isn't true about God, which isn't true most particularly about Christ and his work. 
The scripture says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there is only justification when there is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification happens. God declares us righteous in his sight when we believe. That's what the scripture teaches. It's the piece of it there of our salvation. He declares us righteous. He accepts us in his sight uh, to be his, adopts us into his family, justifies us, declares us righteous uh, when we believe in Jesus. But it has to be Jesus. <laughs> it has to be the real Jesus. If it's not the real Jesus, if, if it's just the Jesus of the example, you know, Jesus came to be my example. And if I follow his example, then I'll be saved. We're sunk, right? I mean, I'm sunk. Either you don't know Jesus or you don't know me. Uh, because uh, I can't. He, you know, I, I realize my sin. And, and I need the Jesus who is the real Jesus. Who what we find in Romans 3 is the propitiation for my sins. He, he satisfies for my sins in Romans in chapter 3 and verse 21. We read this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is, he declares us, forgives us, declares us to be righteous in his sight through faith in Jesus. We trust in Jesus and his righteousness is given to us. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Many of you, you should know this word. It means that God's righteous wrath is towards us and should be because of our sin. And he's righteous and holy. But Jesus comes and pays the penalty for our sin in such a way that God's wrath is extinguished. By his blood to be received by faith. That's how we receive it. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. All those sins before the cross. He passed them over. Now he symbolized what was going to take place with all the blood in the Old Testament. With all the sacrifices. This was to show God's righteousness before in his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just because he's dealing with sin. And he's passing it over. But because he's dealt with it in Jesus. He can justify those who have faith in him. It's that Jesus who made propitiation for our sins. It's that Jesus who John chapter 1 was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. It's that Jesus. The eternal son of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's that Jesus, you see. And so, so it's that Jesus we must cling to and believe in. And so that's the Jesus that has to be taught. That's the sound doctrine, this gospel about our Lord Jesus Christ, who he was and is and what he's done is and doing and will do. That's, you see, that's this body of sound doctrine and then all the implications from that. And they weren't teaching that, many of them in Crete. And so Paul comes to Titus and says, you must teach this. 
And then also, don't stop there, also teach what goes with it. Also teach what fits it. And that is godliness. You must teach this godliness. And so he begins here, we find it. He begins with uh, older men. He'll move to older women. Uh, He'll go to young women and young men. Something about himself, Paul tells him. And then bond servants of all people. Those who are enslaved, really, find themselves in utter submission to another, we might say, those who are marginalized even uh, in the culture, something to bond servants. So he's kind of hitting everyone, but he says, here's, here's what you need to teach, what accords really with sound uh, doctrine. I won't go through all of this in detail. It would take too long, and it, much of it's self-explanatory uh, and isn't difficult. But, but he begins with, with older men. And in and, and all of these classifications, in essence, he's saying to these older men, as you might suspect, there should be a, a measure of maturity about you and even what we could call dignity, that you should live a life that's worthy of respect. Not that you're demanding it, but just the, the way your life goes, that other people, younger men particularly, should be able to look at you and say, that's what it looks like when you follow Jesus for a long time. To be an encouragement, to say, okay, look at that guy. He's old, and yet he still believes in Jesus. And I know some of what he's been through in the context of his life. And yet he still believes in Jesus. He's still following after him. And so he says, older men, uh, this is what accords with with the doctrine of the gospel that you've been taught. Older men are to be sober-minded. That is, that is by life and by the word of God and the spirit of God working in them. They're to be tempered in the sense that they're not to be tossed around by every wind of doctrine anymore. There's a sense in which they see a new teaching pop up in the church and they go, I've heard that before. Just relax. But I've heard that before. Be careful. Or even in the culture, various things happening in the culture. It could, could be war, it could be um, 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 other difficulties, terrorism, so forth, that happens in the world. And older men are still in the midst of that to be, to be sober-minded, to be serious about this. And, no, no, I've seen that before, I've seen this before. Watch for this, watch for that. That's what it's to be like, you see. They're to be dignified, that is, that is living a life that does not bring disrespect on the gospel, that doesn't bring disrespect on Christ, doesn't bring disrespect upon the church. They live a dignified life, you see. They're faithful, they're trustworthy. You think if they're in a particular position, I can trust that we're not going to be embarrassed. I can trust that they're going to be walking and showing forth the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and then because of all that, they they are, to be able to be that, they need to be self-controlled. And we talk about self-control in the scripture, and you'll find self-control throughout this whole passage as a key thing. It's a fruit of the Spirit, if you know the fruit of the Spirit in, 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 in Galatians chapter 5. It's a work of the Spirit. It doesn't mean that you're self-controlled by yourself, that you control yourself by your own will, but by the Word and Spirit at work in you, you've grown to be able to control your passions, to be able to control your appetites, to be able to control your greed, to be able to control your tongue, to be able to control your thoughts. Right? All of that. 
That's what older men are to exemplify in the life of the church because they've been walking with Jesus and his word and spirit has worked in them. Not perfect, but in the midst of their lives. And, I, and I, somebody told me once that getting older isn't for sissies. Uh, when I get older, I'll let you know if that's true or not. But, um, but there's, thank you. But, uh, I know, there you go. But, but, um, but, but, but it isn't, as somebody told me. And, 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 and there's all kinds of things even when faces becomes more real, death becomes more real the older you get, right? Grief and loss and difficulty and uncertainty, really. You have less time to rebound than you did before, right? So all those things come up. But, but it's good because all this is perfect. to be temperate, to be self-controlled, you see. To be sound in faith. To be sound in love. Not only love for other believers would have be sound in that love to love one another as Christ has loved us. Not only love in the context of our neighbor to love your neighbor as yourself, but even to love your enemies. See, that's the unique spin of Christianity on, on love. That we're also to love our enemies. Older men should have that down more than anybody. To love even the enemies they've faced. To bless those who've cursed them. To pray for those who despise them. And to be sound in steadfastness or perseverance. Older women are likewise, which means just like the older men. In a sense, there's to be a dignity of older women in the context of the community of the church. Older men, older women. So older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. That little expression is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an expression that could be translated or understood to live a reverent life. That is to live a life so close to Christ. Then when people see you, that's what they see. They don't think about your clothes. They don't think about your house. They don't think about your car. They don't think about your jewelry. They don't think about your shoes. Um, they, they think about this woman walks with Christ. That's what I see. And so the older women would be like that, you see. And they're not to be slanderers. That is, that is they're, they're to... To, to not have jealousy so that they have to put somebody down. They don't have the insecurities that they have to put somebody down so they can be raised up. Uh, uh, they don't have to be gossips so that, so that bad things can be known about people and all of that and they can look important and I know all of this. They don't have to be any of that. They don't have to be slanderers. They don't have to speak ill about anybody. Slaves to too much wine, there must have been a problem in Crete among the older women. Uh, but... But, but I think the, the, the application, the general one for all of us is that, that the coping mechanism of life is Jesus. So addicted to too much whatever, you fill in the gap as a woman. What is it that, that, that occupies you, that enables you to survive, that it really isn't Jesus? And if you don't have that, you're miserable. Because you see, your life is to show that Christ is all sufficient. And it, it doesn't mean that you know this is happening while you're doing it. <laughs> but that others notice while you're doing it. 
And the older women are to teach what is good. And they're to train the younger women. And to train the younger women, these are categories of things younger women should be true of younger women. But they should also be true of the older women. Because in order to teach the younger women, they must be true of the older women. And so what we have here is that that um, um, they're to train the young women to love their husbands and children. And you think, why should they have to do that? Wouldn't that come naturally? Well, only a woman who isn't married and has no children would say that particularly. There are days, right? And, and not only that, but... There's a Christian understanding of marriage and family that's unique to us. On how we really love one another. How a husband loves his wife and how a wife loves her husband. And how parents love their children. And so that needs to be taught. And I, and I would suspect that in the culture in which we live right now, it may need to be taught by the older women of the church to the younger women in the church more than ever before. You know, as you know, for years, Karen and I taught this class, uh, pre-marriage class, about 20 years now, Chad and Tiff do it, and we kind of pop in every once in a while when the dessert's good. And, um, but uh, 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 what we learned over those now close to 30 years of doing this, um, what we realize is that increasingly there are fewer models of how to, be family. And so increasingly it's important for us, older women, to train younger women, younger women, to come alongside, find an older woman to come alongside of. But when you see her, don't say, hey, you're an older woman, could you help me? Uh, uh, you need another better pickup line than that. But, uh, for your help there. But, 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 but come, but get together, you see. It's necessary. And so it's necessary for the women growing in age in the church as you've raised your, fa- raising your families and, and loving your husband to, to take note of that and to trust Christ in that and to grow in that and to learn in that. That doesn't mean that every woman has to be married. It doesn't mean every woman has to, has to have children because there's relationships that develop among women older to younger that are so important to be self-controlled. To, to tell the younger women you need to be controlled in your passions and your and, and you, your mind needs to be controlled what you look at and what you read and how much time you spend on social media and all those kinds of things that might actually be stealing time than giving and and so so be self controlled in, in in your tongue and how you speak to your husband and to your children and self controlled in in your life. To be kind, I'm sorry, to be pure, that is to be holy, to be working at home. And that doesn't mean women can't work outside the home. What it means is to understand as a woman, you do have a a vocation that is tied to your home. And so older women need to teach the younger women about that vocation, what it's like to be a a mom and a wife, um, and and what it's like to, to be that in the midst of the world in which we live, and to be able to teach that and lay, and to be able to lay that out. To be kind. To speak kindly to each other, to think the best of each other. You know, I'll tell you, ninety percent of the counseling that I do, especially with couples, is is that I just want to say, be nice to each other. Just be kind. Just be kind to each other. 
If, if that's true, I used to tell my kids, as you know, we're sitting around the table. I used to tell them, I said, could you treat each other like total strangers? Because you're way nicer to total strangers, you know? The total stranger at the table said, pass the potatoes. You would, right? Your brother says that you throw them at him. That's not what I mean by that, right? So, so you get the point. Just be kind. If we were just kind to each other. One of my kids, after, I'll blow it, after he was married, uh, was, was a great model for Karen and me. Don't tell him I said this, but one of the things, Josh and Nicole have been married about, uh, I don't know, a long time now, um, since 2002. And uh, they say please and thank you to each other all the time. And it's a sweet thing. It's not made up. It's not just formality. They just do it. And I think, what a great discipline. What a great discipline for a husband and wife. Whatever that is, be kind to each other. Older women teach that kind of kindness. So you have to be kind to your own husband as well. Um, And submissive to their own husbands. Since Paul says to Titus, the older women should teach the younger women how to be submissive to their own husbands. I'll leave it to them. Uh, That sounds like a cop-out, doesn't it? Um, But younger women, if you would like a list of older women who I think could teach you that well, let me know. I have it. There are. Women who could teach you that well. And then, and then he talks to the younger men. And it's fascinating. The only thing he says to the younger men is be self-controlled. That's it. No other, no other word to the younger men. But he adds this word. In English, it's the word urge. And I like that because it kind of, urge, you know, it's really important. You got to really get into it. He said, this is important. Younger men, just be self-controlled. You're filled with all kinds of ambition and all kinds of passion and all kinds of desires. And so what you need to learn is to yield to the word of God and by his spirit that he may work in you in such a way, such a way that you would be self-controlled in what you think and what you do and what you say, what you desire. And then he says to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And so even to Titus, and it could be that, that Titus was to be the model for these younger men. But he says to him, he says, you need to know that, uh, that you need to practice essentially what you preach. The perhaps heaviest burden on anyone who leads in the context of church life to live a life in such a way that the name of Christ is never defiled. And so Paul writes to Titus and he says, you're in this position and these elders would be too. You're in this position and you need to live a life that is in accords with the sound doctrine that you've been taught. Pope Gregory late 6th century put it like this it says no one does more harm in the church than he who has the title of holiness Um, I've never taken that title by the way but you understand you understand the point of it 
And then to bond servants. I don't suppose there's any here that you'd be willing to say, well, you know, give them a break. I mean, after all, they're slaves. After all, they have no life of their own, really. Uh, You would think these would be the ones that Paul would kind of give a free pass to. But he says, no, let me just point out bond servants. Now, now we may want Paul to, to have a whole paragraph on how bond servants could become free. Uh, he no doubt had no category in his brain for that. When he wrote to the church in Corinth, he says, if you're a slave and you can get free, do it. That'd be fine. But, but that wasn't the norm. And so what do you do? What do you say to people who are slaves in a culture, bond servants in a culture, probably exactly the same way that uh, we had slavery, uh, the debauchery of it in our own country um, a couple of centuries ago. But, but still, slavery. person was not his own. And here's what he says. He says, you're to be submissive. They're to be submissive to their own masters. Submissive. In everything. They're to be well-pleasing. That is to do what pleases their masters. Not argumentative. Not pilfering. That is, not, sle- not stealing. Not taking advantage of the masters they're being taken advantage of. But showing all good faith. That's what they were to do, these bond servants. And so you can see this sense of godliness that that fits with the gospel, the sound doctrine, which we've been taught. But why? And so what? Well, the so what of it is, is huge. We can find the so what of it in, in parts of three different verses here in chapter 2. The first one comes in, chapter, in verse 5, and the second verse 8, and the last one in verse 10. In verse 5, uh, we read this, and it comes at the end of, of um, the discussion of older women teaching the younger women. But it really, from other passages of Scripture, really is something that applies to all of us. Uh, it says uh, that they were to be godly. That the word of God may not be reviled. And then in chapter 8, after he talks with Titus about his preaching, he says, "This is you're to live this way so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And then in verse 10, talking to the bondservants, he says, so that in everything they, these bondservants, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see, the reason is because we're to live our lives to glorify God. Westminster, shorter catechism, number one, talked about it last week. What's our chief purpose? What's the chief purpose of human beings? The catechism says, rightly so, that is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We find our joy in glorifying God and in glorifying God, which means we show Him to be great so Paul says, what adorns this gospel is that now you have a heart to follow after Jesus. And following after Jesus means that you're going to live to, to show his father to be great. That's what Jesus did. And so he says, all of these are, are God-centered, you see. Um, J.I. Packer, a theologian of some note who's in his failing years, uh, wrote a book a while ago called Hot Tub Religion, which is an odd title for Packer. If you've ever seen him, you couldn't picture him in a hot tub. You wouldn't even want to, I think. Yeah. And I think he would agree. In fact, in his preface, he makes note of that. He says, the Bible is not primarily about man at all. Its subject is God. He's the chief actor in the drama, the hero of the story. The Bible is a factual survey of God's work in this world, past 
present, future, with explanatory comments from prophets, psalmists, wise men, and apostles. Its main theme is not human salvation, but the work of God, vindicating his purposes and glorifying himself in a sinful and disordered cosmos. He does this by creating and establishing his kingdom and exalting his son, by creating a people, that's us, to worship and serve him, and ultimately by dismantling and reassembling this order of things, thereby rooting sin out of his world. And see, it's all about God. So Paul says, the reason that this godliness is fitting with this sound doctrine is this sound doctrine is about God. And as we believe it and live it out, we're reflecting God. And so just like Jesus said, how do we pray? First petition, hallowed be your name. The first thing that should be on our minds, the first thing that should be on our hearts, the first thing that we should be thinking about, not only when we pray, but in all of life, is that God's name would be hallowed, it would be holy, it would be honored. And he said, therefore, you've got to live in such a way that God's name will not be reviled, that his word won't be reviled. That, 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 that his name won't be defiled. He says that's how we're to live. And when we live that way, you see, that's glorifying to him. And that's our ultimate joy. That's the joy that we have. When older men mature and they're sober-minded and all of that and living godly lives, that's joy. When older women are, are living holy lives, that's joy. When younger women are learning to follow after Christ, that's joy. When, when younger men are being self-controlled for the honor of Christ, that's their joy. You see, when bond slaves are honoring and submissive to their masters, that's their joy. Till they can become free. So he said, this is to live in this way so that the word of God will not be maligned will not be reviled so we can show him great. I read earlier in the service from Matthew chapter 5 that people would see our good works and do what? You know the end. Glorify our Father who is in heaven. And that's our joy. Oh, there's a measure of joy when you do something and people say thanks. Should they say thanks? There's a measure of joy when we do something to help someone and all of that. But the greatest joy is when we know that God has been honored, that God has been pleased. When people say, that person's God must really be great. Look at how they're living right now. They're living their lives, you see. And that's to be a great honor of God. And in this last one, to the bond servants, verse 10, he says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You see, our lives are, are to be like jewelry on God, if you will. I have been told by, by people who know about jewelry, and I, I don't. My, I've been told that by someone I live with. But, but um, uh, the, uh, I, I don't know, but, but jewelry, in theory isn't to draw attention to itself. If you really know how to wear jewelry, I suppose, it isn't to draw attention to itself. It's to make the wearer's beauty manifest. You see, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is drop-dead gorgeous. 
And people are to see its beauty through our lives and how we live. Oh yeah, they should see its beauty by the, by the way that we teach and what we teach and how we teach it. The theology of, of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ is beautiful. And to lay that out and to see it is beautiful. But you know that the world won't take time to do that. And so the way that the world sees this is by the lives, really, that we live. And so we're to adorn the gospel of Jesus in such a way that people look at us and say, wow, God is drop-dead gorgeous. Look at him. A uh, writer, I hope I have this somewhere, from the... Ah, there it is. From the second century, mid-second century, yeah, but mid-second century. So we're looking at... 150 to 180, so pretty fresh after the death of the apostles. A guy named uh, Athanagoras uh, wrote, and this is in a book that you don't have uh, of the uh, anti-Nicene fathers, but it's in a chapter in, with, with this title, and the chapter title is this, The Moral Teaching of Christians Repels the Charge Brought Against Them. The moral teaching of the Christians repels the charge brought against them. And here's what he says. It's a whole paragraph. Listen. What then are those teachings in which you were brought up? And so remember, this was not an easy time to be a Christian. And so he's saying, so he's saying what? remember now, what were the teachings that we've uh, been brought up in? And he said, I say to you, here are the teachings, love your enemies Bless them that curse you, pray for them that persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is, heaven, who is in heaven, who causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And so he's quoting Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, this is what we've been taught. I know your life is tough, I know there are enemies, but this is what we've been taught, to love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them, persecute the, uh, pray for them that persecute you that you may be sons of your father. And so then he goes on to say, allow me here to lift up my voice boldly and loud and audible outcry, pleading as I do before philosophic princes. Now, that was not a compliment. Right? When he refers to philosophic princes, he's talking about those who just like to talk. Right? For who of those that reduce syllogisms and clear up ambiguities and explain etymologies out of those who teach homonyms and synonyms and predicaments and axioms. And what is the subject and what is the predicate and, and who promised their disciples by these and such like instructions to make them happy? Who of them have so purged their souls as instead of hating their enemies to love them and instead of speaking ill of those who've reviled them? to abstain from which of itself is an evidence of no mean forbearance, to bless them and to pray for those who plot against their lives. He's saying, of all those who've taught you just all of these nice little jots and tittles, and I love jots and tittles, right? Spend a lot of time every week on jots and tittles. But he says, listen, what's really the point of the jots and tittles and all of that 
but that you live a godly life following after Christ. So who among those who teach you are those jots and tittles also then themselves and you? Instead of loving their enemies, love them. Instead of speaking ill of those who've reviled them, to bless them and to pray for those who plot against their lives. On the contrary, they never cease with evil intent to search out skillfully the secrets of their art and are ever bent on working some ill, making the art of words and, and not the exhibition of deeds of their business and profession. But among us, Christians, you, and this is, this is, take this home, but among us, you will find uneducated persons and artisans and old women who, if they were unable, uh, who, if they were unable in words to prove the benefit of our doctrine, yet by their deeds exhibit the benefit arising from their persuasion of its truth. They do not rehearse speeches, but they exhibit good works. When struck, they do not strike again. When robbed, they do not go to law. They give to those who ask of them and love their neighbors as themselves. In the words of Paul, they adorn the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They show it to be beautiful. By following after him, you see. And this piece was added to the bond slaves. The biggest contrast of all. And he's saying, bond slaves, live like this. Adorn the gospel of Jesus. It'll really be seen if you live this transformed life following after Christ. In that setting, everybody will see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's how we're to live, you see. That's, if, if we benefit, if we've received this truth about Christ and believe it, and we know sin's forgiven and we know we're declared righteous and we're adopted into his family, don't forget that part of this whole salvation is for God to give us his spirit and his word to enable us to walk in his ways. And we're to live holy lives and it's a living of the holy lives that people are able to see the glory of Christ. So we must continue to do that. Now, of course, dare I say, that we live in a divided culture, we live in a divided nation, we live perhaps even in a divided church when it comes to some things. But to realize that our unity is based on what we believe to be about Christ and how he has called us to himself, enables us to show the truth of the gospel as we live together as one people, as we bless one another, right? As we speak well of one another, as we speak well to one another, as we help one another and love one another and all of that as the older men lead lives that the younger men can look up to and say that's what it means to follow Christ as the older women live in such a way that the younger women can grow and be trained by them as the, as the younger men learn self-control as they follow the examples of others as even those who live on the marginal ends of culture can follow after Christ as well and be among us and all of us together you see that speaks volumes to the world in which we live. And now the question is, do we have any hope that that can really happen? Well, the answer is yes. 
And we'll unpack that during Advent. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us as we're here on this morning. Because of the truth that is in us. That will be fit with godliness as well. Help us to live and to love. To love our friends, to love our neighbors, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And even to love our enemies. Help us to live in such a way that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is shown to be what it is. Beautiful. Help people, I pray, through the words that we speak, through the lives that we live, through the way that we treat one another. That people would see good works and they would realize that those works are done because of and for the glory of God. And they will, in turn, glorify our Father who is in heaven. Father, you've blessed us as a community so many times that it's, it's easy to, to, to be a community together. We're grateful for babies. Uh, we're be- grateful for the little girl born to Kelly and Jordan Clark. We're grateful there, Father. We pray you will bless them. We pray for the little weeby twins still in the hospital, but we give you thanks that they're growing well, and we pray that in due time that they'll be... Uh, big enough to to leave the hospital, strong enough to leave the hospital and to, to live at home with their their parents and be a great blessing there. Father, we know that many are, are in difficulty in life. We pray for Shawnee Huff and uh, Greg and uh, the children, Graham and Grace, on the loss of Shawnee's mom. She passed away earlier this morning, and so I pray that you would be with them and that you would grant grace to them that they would find help in their grief during this time of need. Father, we pray for those who are suffering, for those who are suffering from stroke, for those who are suffering from cancer, and those who are in process of therapies in various ways for heart conditions. Father, we pray that you would bring healing and grace. But in the midst of all those difficulties, we pray that each person would, would adorn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with their lives in such a way that might be doctors, might be nurses, might be friends, might be family, who would see their life and know the beauty of the gospel and the glory of our Heavenly Father. Father, for us as a church, may we continue to live together in such a way uh, to be a model to, to the world around us as the world around us becomes more fragmented and more divided and more uh, derisive and as rhetoric is, is, gets harsher and all of that. I pray, God, that we would be a people of kindness. We would be a people of self-control. We would be a people of godliness. To love one another, to love our enemies. To bless one another, to bless our enemies. In such a way that you would be glorified. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.